Good morning. The scripture for this morning's sermon is found in John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. You can find it on the screen. You can also find it in the Pew Bible, page 841. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than the father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? What do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. With this time, we're going to dismiss any children ages four through kindergarten to go out to children's church. Uh, Kira's in the back. Uh, we'll dismiss as well those who are going to be studying the sermon, English as Second Language. You can go to the cafe and um, discuss this passage there as well. I'll say over the last 10 years, eight of those, it has been a great privilege um, that more weeks than not you've led us in worship. I'm thankful for that, Ben. I recently heard someone comment about what they called May-sember. <laughs> it was all the busyness of December, but without Christmas. <laughs> Some of you with high school graduates, I see it in your face. <laughs> Maybe you see it in mine. I don't have a high school graduate, but it feels full. Maybe you're as tired as I am, and this morning... Our last sermon in the Gospel of John until the fall, um, as Ben has said earlier and as we've been singing and, and kind of trending that way already, we're going to spend uh, the large part of the sermon just being glad, just as, as, as it says of Abraham, being glad and rejoicing in all that Jesus is for us in the Gospel. So to that end, as we study this passage, let's pray one more time. Lord, we sang moments ago that for endless days we will praise your name. In our flesh, in our kind of worldly understanding or, or just even, as, even our redeemed understanding of as good as that could look to us now and yet this in-between state of redeemed but not fully glorified, that, doesn't, that feels like that could get boring. 
And yet as I read the pages of Scripture, there are endless treasures, unsearchable riches in the good news story of Jesus, in His person and work. And so I pray this morning, then rather than being bored or the experience of, yes, I've heard that before. I pray that you would visit us afresh. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When we began preaching through this portion of the Gospel of John a few weeks ago, I mentioned that John chapter 8 ends roughly where it begins. That is, with stones. First, there's a woman caught in sin, and the religious leaders want to stone her. Or probably more specifically, they want Jesus to be the one to stone her. He does not. No one throws a stone. That's the beginning of the chapter. Here's how it ends, John 8, 59, quote, So they picked up stones to throw at him, yet no one throws a stone. It's not his time. In this section, John 8, 48 through 59, there are three back and forths. It's almost like this game of tennis. The Jews say something, Jesus responds. The Jews say something, Jesus responds. Then he says something else, or they say something else, and he says something else, and then this time they want to take his rackets, the rackets and smash it over his head. Like, game over. They're not playing anymore. So what happened... What did they say to each other that led to that as the conclusion? I want to briefly, very briefly, break down these three back and forth, just so we have a sense of, of what was going on. What was the climax of this conversation? Where, where was it always going? So first, first, they make a racial slur, and they say that Jesus has a demon. Verse 848 are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? <laughs> now, what's, what's crazy to me is as I read this, it just feels so polite, right? Like, are we not right in saying you're left-handed <laughs> or, or something like that? Like, are we not right in saying we're coming over to dinner later tonight or something? That's not what they're saying at all. It's so offensive. Jesus responds. He says, I, I, I don't have a demon, and then he notes that if anyone keeps his word, that person lives forever. It's back and forth. Then the Jews say, yes, now we know he's crazy, he's possessed by a demon, because he can't be better than Abraham, because nobody's better than Abraham. Abraham's like the best, and he didn't live forever. And because even great people don't live forever, Jesus, certainly you can't be greater than Abraham. Jesus says, well, actually, Abraham looked forward to my day with the eyes of faith, and when he saw it, he rejoiced back and forth. Then the Jews say that Jesus was way too young, like almost 18 Uh, 150 years too young for Abraham and Jesus to have seen each other. And Jesus then says, well, actually, before Abraham was even born, I am. Now, he doesn't say I was, meaning like before Abraham was even born, I predated Abraham. 
which would have been a very special claim, but Jesus says, I am, meaning before Abraham, before Abraham, I always have been and will be always back and forth. And at this clear claim to his own divinity, hearkening back to Exodus 3.14, which Ben led us through in the Confession of sin and assurance of pardon, this, this monumental Old Testament passage where Jesus, where, where the Father, we take it to be, but it's this, it, in, in light of what Jesus is saying here, it's this Trinitarian, I am who I am. Jesus says that of himself. In light of that claim, they pick up stones to smash into his head. They're not happy. Now, if this were an ordinary sermon, what what I would tell you is that probably we go in even deeper looking at the details. We pull out the microscope. I'd pull out the microscope and we'd look at the intricacies, the, the details of this back and forth. I'd want us to see, as I think God would want us to see, what this passage shows us about our sin and our Savior. And each week when we look at the Bible, there's so many things that we can see even I would say should see when we preach and when we read. And in our preaching, we often lean hard into these two themes, our sin and our Savior. What is our sin and who is our Savior? We do that over and over again. Who is, or what is our sin and who is our Savior? We do that because when we see these two clearly, we think it's by seeing both of these clearly that we see everything else clearly. But I use the phrase, if this were an ordinary sermon, I actually don't want to do much of that this morning. This is our last sermon in the Gospel of John until September, and all summer long, uh, we're going to be preaching through a different portion of Scripture, which I'll say at the end. And so this sermon can be different. It can be something of a summary to see where we've been, but that's not the main reason I want this morning to be different. I would say that for the last several weeks, we, we've already focused a good bit on our sin, we just have. We've seen the sin of these religious leaders. I mean, four, it's really one conversation. We took four weeks to look at one conversation. So the, we, we've been there. We've seen their hard-heartedness. And week after week, we've talked about the way these religious leaders are sinful and their hard-heartedness as kind of these religious leaders who they wanted to build their own system of faith, of salvation, so to speak, where they could come to God on their own merits. They could take their resume and hand it to God and say, look, Lord, look, bless me. You know, this, this is what I've done. And we've seen how Jesus is trying to break them from that illusion over and over again. Church, you, you don't want to come to the judgment seat of God giving him your resume. You don't want to do that. And so there's a helpfulness for believers in Jesus, even though categorically these religious leaders were coming to God, like not just partially with a resume, as the way Christians kind of, there's still this remaining sin within us that wants to be justified in our own merits. They were doing it categorically. And so there's a helpfulness for seeing week after week the way what they do categorically, we still do in part. There's a helpfulness to that. But we've done that. And there's a bigger part of a Christian, a part that's bigger than our sin, that just wants to be reminded of how awesome Jesus is, and to rejoice and be glad for all the junk in the world that we can't seem to fix with boycotts, with outrage, 
for all the junk in our lives, for all the weariness and waywardness, sometimes on some Sundays, we just need the reminder of who Jesus is. To rejoice and be glad. That's what happened for Abraham. We read that he looked forward with the eyes of faith and he saw the day of Jesus. And even what he could see in miniature, it made him happy, the passage says. Look at verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day and he saw it and was glad. So that's what we're going to do. Rest of the sermon, four or five pages. I'm going to go back through each chapter and just pick one highlight, which was hard. <laughs> you take 10 highlights out of each passage, but we're just going to go through chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way back to ending where we started in 859. So chapter 1. If you have a Bible, it might be helpful. You can flip with me or you can just let it land on you and you can hear these truths, but I'm going to be reading just a couple verses and just making a couple comments. So, Chapter 1, rejoice in the good news that Jesus is no mere man. We spent several sermons in this famous opening to John's gospel. Let me read verses 1 to 3, and then in just a second I'll read 6 through 8. But 1 to 3, this magnanimous opening, magisterial. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was and is God. He's not a mere man. He's what we call often in Christian theology the God-man, this, this God and man together and look how the godness of Jesus is contrasted with the mere manness of John the Baptist in verses 6 through 8. So you have, in the beginning was the Word, and then you come to verse 6, 7, and 8, and you read this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light. I mean, he's a light, but he was not the light came to bear witness about the light. I mean, think about what he's saying here. There's one who is the light, and then in contrast, there's a man who is sent from God. It's like saying there's the moon, and then there's the sun. That's what we said when we looked at this a long time ago. There's the sun, and there's the moon. And the moon has a lot of light on nights when the, 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 the moon is shining full. Like the, You can see a lot of things. But everything we see by the light of the moon, we see by the light of the sun, shining and reflecting off. Rejoice that Jesus is no mere man. Chapter 2. Chapter 2. Rejoice in the good news that Jesus is clearing away everything in our way so that we can worship him. That's what Jesus is doing. This chapter opens with a story about Jesus turning water to wine. So to know Jesus is festive, it's joyful, it's happy. It's significant that he chooses this as his first sign, the gospel says, the first sign that, that would point to him in a special way. And then Jesus goes to the temple where he sees the temple and it's become this commercial circus. 
they're buying and selling, and, and he takes out his whip, and he, as we describe it normally, he cleanses the temple. Look at verses 13, 14, and then on through 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. So just for context, like it's Passover, right? So, so you're going to travel a long ways. You're gonna, it's, it's a little easier to travel with money than it is to travel with big, hairy animals, right? So there's, there's a convenience here, and, and it, that, that, that's what's not necessarily wrong, but, but there's something of, we, we would use the term price gouging. They're capitalizing on the need of the people, and they're coming there. They, they just want to worship. Jesus wants that too. Verse 15, and making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. Like you can do that, but, but not here, he's saying. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their temples. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Just hinting at this theme that's over and over again. This special connection between the father and the son. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal, zeal for your house will consume me. Church, rejoice. In the good news that Jesus is clearing everything in our way so that we can worship him. You can rest in the truth that if you are in Jesus, you do not simply have to manufacture your own purity for worship. Like we should try to be pure. Like we should set about our lives in such a way and what we watch and what we do and all sorts of ways, ways that we should try and be pure. But, but Jesus, hear it from this passage, we can rest in the truth that Jesus is passionate, even to use the words of this passage, zealous, so that nothing gets in our way of worshiping him. That's how you should view your life. What's happening in your life right now Probably, among all the other things, is Jesus clearing away so that you can know him and worship him in spirit and truth and be happy in him forever. It's good news. Chapter 3. Rejoice in the good news that Jesus is giving himself for the world. So many wonderful things in chapter 3. This passage begins with this nighttime conversation between Jesus and this religious leader named Nicodemus. Nicodemus wants to understand what it means to follow God, so he comes to Jesus at night. He's like, can we talk about this? Can, can I ask questions? Can you, can you listen to me? Can you hear me out? And Jesus has a very blunt conversation with him. And in the midst of that conversation, then we come to the most famous verse in all of probably the Gospel of John. Maybe we would say all of the Bible. John chapter 3, verse 16. Maybe... I don't know, I was wrestling with whether to do this. Let's just do it. Let's just read it together. So if you have John 3.16 open, probably we've got it memorized in 10 different versions. But let's just read John 3.16 together. All right. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Church, rejoice that if you believe in Jesus, you will never perish. Here, Jesus means something similar to what he means in chapter 8 when he speaks of never seeing death, what 
Then the religious leaders say he's never tasting death, this Hebrew phrase they were using of never seeing death, never tasting death, never perishing. It's not that those who believe in Jesus will never die, probably. He's going to come again, and some who are in Jesus when he comes again won't die. But most of us will die. But the kind of death a believer dies is more like in the New Testament words of falling asleep and then waking up in paradise. Church, rejoice that God so loved the world and is giving himself for the world that you will never perish even when you perish. Chapter 4. Rejoice in the good news that Jesus is looking for the worst of sinners to make friends. In school, you know, you take your lunch tray, some of you, it's been a while, others not so much. You go through the line and then you wonder, like, who am I going to sit with, <laughs> right? Every once in a while, as a pastor, I end up at different places where I don't know people and I don't have, I'm not always holding a lunchroom. Like, who am I going to sit with? Can I just find someone I know? Or maybe that's where the cool people are sitting, and maybe there's room for me to go sit with them. Jesus goes looking for the least likely to be his friend so that he can be their friend. We see this in chapter 4. Come to this long section where Jesus is meeting with this woman we say, we call her, we don't even know her name, this woman at the well. And she's there in the hot middle of the day, presumably because she doesn't want to be there with other people and other people don't want to be there with her. And you just picture maybe like someone who's recently gone through a divorce and they just, they don't even want to go back to church. It's just too hard. And here's this Samaritan woman. No good Jewish person wants to be around with her there. People from the wrong side of the track, so to speak, and Jesus loves her. Jesus befriends her. Look at verses four through, excuse me, chapter four, eleven through fourteen. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? He'd already spoken of. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will give him, will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This friendliness towards Samaritans is perhaps why in John 8, the religious leaders accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan himself. Maybe he's one of them, they suppose. Except he's not one of them. But he not only befriends the worst of sinners, he on the cross becomes the worst of sinners. Rejoice in the good news that Jesus is looking for the worst sinners to not only forgive, but befriend. There is no one you know, including yourself, who is outside the reach of the grace of God. Like, I, it's a funny thing, but like, I can't reach you. Like, I physically can't shake Ben's hand. I can't reach him. I, I can't give him a hug. I can't, I, can't, I can't reach you. And there are people in your lives for, through geographic, 
geography or because of friction in the relationship or for whatever reason. Maybe they're children who have walked away from the Lord and you, you, you pray for them, you don't, but, but geographically or just emotionally or conflict-wise, you can't reach them. Just rejoice in the good news that there is no one that Jesus can't reach. Chapter 5, rejoice in the good news that Jesus is giving Life to the spiritually dead. In chapter 5, Jesus heals this man. He hasn't been able to walk for nearly 40 years, four decades. And he heals the man on a Sabbath, which causes all kinds of problems with the Jewish religious teachers. They have these rules. You're supposed to follow the rules, Jesus. You're not following our rules. And it's into this context that Jesus gives a speech. And Jesus essentially says, you think it's a big deal? That I would heal a man on a Sabbath like that? He says, there's going to be a day where everyone who hears my voice rises to life spiritually. This is a metaphor, people. This is a, a sign. This, is a, this, this points to something about me and who I am that's supposed to make you happy. Look at verses 25 through 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, The hour is coming and is now here, and I would say is here now as well, when the dead, the spiritually dead who are going to hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given authority, him authority, to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, he says. For the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Church, rejoice that even though you can't clean yourself up sufficiently so that you could present yourself worthy of God's love, Jesus is speaking to you. And if you hear his voice, he is giving you life. Chapter 6, we'll go chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, we're going. Rejoice in the good news that Jesus is food from heaven. Chapter 6, several miracles. He feeds the 5,000 with just those few loaves, few fish, with just that little sack lunch, this little lunchable from this child he brought to hear Jesus speak. And everybody's hungry, he feeds them, and then There's leftovers, and then they cross the Sea of Galilee at night, quite dramatic fashion, and then some, in fact, many of them follow around the Sea of Galilee to the other side, and they have this back and forth about manna and bread from heaven, and look how Jesus talks in verses 47 to 51. No one talks like this, as they say in chapter 7. No one talks like this. 47 through 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. Church, rejoice in the good news that Jesus is is bread from heaven. Chapter 7, rejoice in the good news that Jesus is living water, doubling over of themes. He's constantly doing this in the Gospel of John, circling back and back and back again over these same themes, even 
in chapters 7 and 8 especially. See, Jesus comes down to Jerusalem again. He had been away. Sea of Galilee, he comes back down. It's not Passover, but it's, a, it's another festival. It's this festival of booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, as we called it, the, the, the festival of camping. <laughs> They're celebrating that when they left Egypt, they camped in the wilderness for longer than they expected, longer than they wanted. But as they're going to the promised land, God is watching over them and caring for them and providing for them bread and water. This is the festival in the background of chapter 7 and 8. Two summers ago, I hiked for four days in the Adirondack Mountains with friends. And I will tell you, it's not even a desert climate. (laughs) It was a summer, but it's pretty lush up there in the summer. I don't know if you've been there. That was the first time I'd been there. And I will tell you, I was surprised at the extraordinary amount of time we spent looking for water and finding water and then purifying water and then lugging water back to camp and then going back out and finding more water. This is the three dads. This is what we did. I think we spent for four days going to finding water, bringing back water, drinking water, finding more water. And it's not even a desert. And here, Jesus is saying that kind of thirst, that kind of energy expended, I am giving that to you spiritually in myself. Look at verses 7, 37 through 38 in chapter 7. On the last day of the feast, that great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Rejoice in the good news that Jesus is living water. Now, we come again to chapter 8. Behold the good news that Jesus was and is and is to come. Back in chapter 8, not only is Jesus... No mere man, not only is he clearing away everything in our lives so that we can worship him, not only is he giving himself for the world, not only is he looking for the worst sinners to make his friends, not only is he giving life to the spiritually dead, not only is he food from heaven and living water, and as we see in one part of chapter 8, the light of the world, not only is he all of that, but he is the one who was and is and is to come. Here he says, I am. Meaning, I am who I am. Exodus 3.14. Look again at verses 53 through 58. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died who do you make yourself out to be Jesus answered if I glorify myself my glory is nothing it is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God but you have not known him I know him If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, your father in a physical lineage sense, not your father spiritually. It's been the, the crux of the argument back and forth. Your father, genetically speaking, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? (laughs) Right? 
They just want to mock him. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. When we press into the commentaries for help, which is what I often do to see, like, okay, where was it? In Abraham's life, that, that, and, and how was it, so to speak, that, that he saw the day of Jesus? Like, what, what, what do we have there in Genesis 11, the end of 11 through 12 or 22, all the way maybe into 25? Like, where was it in Abraham's life that he saw the day of Jesus? I'll tell you, no one's sure. <laughs> they don't know. Some people give better guesses than others. Maybe it was in a specific event. In the promising of a special son, Abraham... This promised a special son, chapter 12, where he's going to have a special son, he's going to have a special son, and in his children, all the families of the world are going to be blessed. So maybe it's in that promise in 12 or in chapter 21 when he has that special son. Maybe it's there that he's in some way seeing that promise of the special son who's going to be a blessing to the world, that in that way he's looking forward to a day where the promise is bigger and better than he could have imagined. And so in that way he's looking forward to the day of Messiah, maybe. Maybe he saw the day of the Messiah through the types of experiences where he learned about the power and the grace of God. In fact, the, the powerful grace of God. Like when he meets this priest king named Melchizedek in chapter 14. Out of nowhere comes this king who blesses him. They have this meal of bread and wine. And maybe in that experience of God's grace and power, this mysterious experience, maybe in some way in that he was seeing the day of Jesus Maybe it's in the special sacrifice of not Isaac, but this lamb. Oh, look, there's a lamb. Put, we're going to sacrifice the lamb instead. And in that substitution, maybe in that way, he's experiencing and looking forward to and knowing something of the day of Jesus. Or maybe, maybe he actually had a meal with Jesus. Hear me out here. It's a little weird because it's the Old Testament. So how did Jesus and Abraham have a meal together. In the Old Testament, there's this cryptic phrase, but it shows up actually a whole bunch of times called the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord shows up, like the, the angel of the Lord. There's not just angels, but there's like the angel of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, just like in Exodus 3.14. And sometimes this angel of the Lord is referred to with such should we say holiness and reverence and awe that the things that the angel of the Lord does are so likened to the things that only the Lord himself does that people look at that from a distance and say, it looks like it's not the angel of the Lord, but it's the Lord himself who's there, maybe even Jesus. It's the angel of the Lord in Genesis 22 who says, don't sacrifice your son, sacrifice the lamb, put down the knife. Chapter 18, there's this meal that Abraham has with these heavenly beings. So maybe in that way, he saw the angel of the Lord? You can't be sure. Maybe it's in all of those ways at once. But we can be sure of this. When Abraham saw it through the eyes of faith, when he experienced all that he could experience with God, and he understood his own sin and his need for a Savior, and the Savior that God would provide, he rejoiced. He was glad. Contemplating the day of the Messiah made him happy. The religious leaders, however, are not so happy. They're filled with murderous rage. But they would not kill Jesus yet, John 8, 59, ending where we began. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. His hour had not yet come. 
you just feel like the wheels of time turning and like sovereignly in control, Jesus is saying. It's not going to happen until it happens. He knows what he's doing. He would not perish until he perished so that everyone who believes in him, even when they perish, they wouldn't perish. And even in this passage, it's just, just final note, just let it astound you that he phrases this if. He's saying, you don't know me, you're a liar, you're the father's the devil, like this is John chapter 8, but even in the midst of this, he's holding out to them, if anyone believes in my word, like, like right now, like I'm looking at you, Jesus is saying, and you who want to stone me and smash little tennis rackets onto my head, even if you believe in me, you'll never perish. What a savior. Just a moment, I'm going to close in prayer, invite the worship team up, not yet. I want to mention that we ended here in John chapter 8 with a little bit of thought. We're going to pick up again in September, and we're going to be doing something different all summer. We're going to be looking at Genesis, and we're going to study the life of Abraham. His two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, three steps back, sometimes this life of faith that we experience. We're calling the sermon series towards the city with foundations. And be reading, if you'd like, the, the passages there from Genesis 12 to 22. We're calling it towards the city with foundations because of something that is said of Abraham in the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews, looking back on Abraham and his journey to the promised land, has this to say. By faith, he, Abram, Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. He, this is author of Hebrews looking back on Abraham, he says, and he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The idea is that we all are in many ways like Abraham, looking forward to the city, the better city, the true and greater city, the city that actually has foundation, the city, the, the, the life in the city, the way it was always meant to be in the life in the city, the heavenly city, the way it will be one day. So all that starts not next week, but the following. Next week, um, Pastor Ron Smith is going to be coming, who I want to present to you as a, a pastoral candidate here. He'll be preaching from Titus chapter 2. Let's close in prayer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, the old hymn goes that as we look full in your wonderful face, the things of this world will grow strangely dim. I'd, I think that's true in one sense. Lord, I, I, I pray in all the ways that that should be true. It would be true for us. That week after week, you would be giving us the perspective we need to see our sin and our Savior. And I pray as well that in the ways that that's not true, <laughs> that all the things in this world would also grow strangely bright in the fullness of your wonderful face. That, that, that as we see who you really are, we would then be enabled to see everything else the way it ought to be seen. 
Lord, we pray as we read in the scripture earlier this morning that you would week after week be transforming us from one degree of glory to the other as we behold your wonderful face.